Warning, this podcast episode may contain explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. If you've been listening, you know that what you can expect from us is spoilers. Lots and lots and lots of spoilers for literally everything in the Grishaverse. We will be spoiling all three series and in this episode, season one and season two of the Netflix Shadow and Bone show. My name is JJ. I'm Kat. And I'm Anjali. Today's topic is that ending of season two. All right, so this episode, we'll be discussing the ending of season two of the Netflix Shadow and Bone show. And my fun name fact here is that I cannot say season two of the Netflix Shadow and Bone show without reading it (laughs) from my notes. I screw it up horrifically. I was trying to ask Anjali's husband about it a couple weeks ago, and I had to say it like four (laughs) times before he figured out (laughs) what I was saying. At home, I started referring to it as Netflix and Bone, which I guess is saying the quiet part aloud. So sad fact to kick this off is that we recorded a Wesper episode like a month ago already and it had real audio problems like you don't get to hear Anjali at all sort of audio problems so we are either going to re-record it or figure out a way to fix it but we've been silent for longer than usual and it's due only to this tragedy Um, so I was saying to Kat, as soon as she got on the call, just how excited I am to talk about the ending of season two. We talked a little bit about various parts of it in the last episode. The ending itself was just really different from what I expected. It it really kind of leaves season three wide open. So let's start with talking about our characters from Shadow and Bone and the kind of endings that they got in season two here. Let's start with our girl, Alina. I don't even know where to start. Is she the same character? Like the ending is so wildly different from the books. Maybe we can start with the fact that Alina keeps her powers. That's so different. It's such a departure. Alina keeps her powers. She continues to be the only sun summoner. There are no sun soldiers or whatever that she accidentally creates in the book. Okay, I think there are two ways you can kind of evaluate this. I think there's some good things about it. I think it doesn't cut off Alina's story. She remains in the narrative. It's exciting in some ways. We will continue to see her adventures in season three, if there is a season three. Really happy for Alina in some ways. I I know, JJ, you're always kind of sad about Alina losing her powers because it, it seemed almost like a really big punishment for her or just it was sad to say goodbye to her for the rest of the series. So I think that's the good <laughs> aspect to that. But for me... I think a significant con is it makes the story feel wildly imbalanced. 
you may or may not like that Alina loses her powers, but I think it made sense as a plot arc, the idea that she had to sacrifice something incredibly important to her. And it wasn't Mal. It wasn't like something almost as like shallow as a love interest. It was this identity and power and confidence she had built in herself through this three book series. And she sort of loses the thing that made that come together. And I thought just narratively, that was so powerful. And so interesting to me that at the beginning of season two of Shadow and Bone, she and the Darkling have a conversation where the Darkling says, oh, you know, you're young, you don't know what like sacrifice is, you're gonna have to give things up that you don't expect. I mean, I'm heavily paraphrasing here. What he means, and possibly what Alina thinks he means is, you know, people that you love, your friends, your love interests, and then you're you're going to be alone. And, you know, that that's probably true. But thinking that Alina was going to lose her powers at the end of the series, I heard that conversation. And I was like, wow, this is unexpected. It has unexpected resonance for me. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they're probably talking about this one thing, but you know, we're going to go back and rewatch the series and realize that the thing that she's really going to have to give up is her powers. But then she doesn't lose her power. So, so disappointed. Yeah. Well, I think the ending here really gets to the difference between sacrifice and loss. Mm-hmm. So Alina does not sacrifice her powers. She does not willingly give them up. They are taken away from her and she loses them. And especially in the books, it is unclear to me if that's a sacrifice she would have willingly totally. made. And Mal in the books is a sacrifice that she willingly makes. She's not excited to do it, but she does do it. One of the differences of Alina in the show is so many of these choices are taken away from her. They do this really neatly in the ending where the Darkling half kills Mal. It's obvious Mal is dying, so she can kill him and feel basically fine about it, right? He would have died anyway and just wouldn't have been able to be her amplifier. Um, And it's kind of like how she didn't intend to kill the Sea Whip, but then the Sea Whip was threatening Mal, and so then she kills it. And that choice, I'm using air quotes here, was taken away from her. Yeah, she loses a lot of her agency. Yeah, she loses a lot of her agency. And kind of with the mythology that the amplifiers were intended for her, which is not something that ever made sense to me in a number of ways. Everything is just much more faded. So the sacrifice that she makes, she doesn't really make a sacrifice in the show. I think also one thing that thematically made sense, we can talk about amplifier theory later, because it's still something I'm dying to get into. But you know, in, in both the show and the books, they talk about how you're really not supposed to have more than one amplifier. And Alina is collecting amplifiers left and right, or I guess she collects three, right? Left, right, and center. <laughs> yes. There's almost the idea that there's this positive feedback that happens when you get too much power, which is that she's too big to contain that. And so it goes to all of these other people in the fold and they become the new sun summoners. And I almost saw that as tying in with the narrative about how she was becoming a little power hungry. And it almost seemed like a 
narrative punishment for that. Like if you get mm-hmm. so greedy, this is the consequence. You you lose all your power somehow. And I like that in the series. Like, Alina just seems to be getting more and more power in the show with no reaction from the universe. We do not need to relitigate the original trilogy, but I will say the reason I didn't like that in the original trilogy is that it's pretty clear that the reason she is getting power hungry is from the amplifiers. Mm-hmm. And so like they're making her power hungry and then she's punished for it as if like that's something she somehow did rather than was forced upon her. So anyway, we don't need to re-examine. <laughs> We're on season two. Hot take back to the question of sacrifice in the show. What I interpreted the Darkling's message to her, and I saw that JJ actually put the quote here, so I'm going to read part of it. From episode one, the Darkling says, the question remains, are you willing to sacrifice that which is most precious to you? I interpret it as she sacrifices Mal's love for her in order to resurrect him probably with Mirzost, which is not at all what happened in the book, where she loses the sacrifices her power, as you two both mentioned. So I rewatched the last episode in preparation for this episode of the podcast. And one thing that really stood out to me was she kills two people effectively in a very short period of time. First, Mal. Um, obviously, he's like telling her, do it. You know where to find me, like blah, blah, blah. And she does it. She's a little sad, but she pretty quickly moves over to the Darkling. And then she stabs the Darkling in cold blood, literally as he's like reminiscing about her having a montage of her, which is brutal. And she's smiling. And this was pretty different for me from what I imagined in the book ending, where it felt way more like a bittersweet moment. Yeah. There is a lot that we are missing from the Darkling's death in the show. It was played so differently. And, you know, because they didn't have that relationship building up to it. Kat, in our last episode, you said that it drove you wild when they tried to shove in the iconic lines in scenes that didn't make any sense. The worst. And I just wrote like a list of iconic lines that we did not get from the Darkling death scene. Oh my God, we're Um, getting our JJ recast as the Darkling (laughs) moment, Anjali. (laughs) There was the don't let me be alone, speak my name once more. He was just a boy, brilliant, blessed with too much power, burdened by eternity. That one was narration, so I didn't really expect we'd get that. Although maybe there could have been like a voiceover. That would have been pleasant. A Bagra. A Bagra <laughs> she, she would never have said that. Not show Bagra. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't get that. And we get, as you pointed out, kind of this really killing in a moment where it's a little bit unexpected, especially because she has never killed Anyone, even unintentionally, before, Any not directly. In the book, she has killed people unintentionally, but it's still, she sort of accepts the fact that she was responsible for their deaths. She has also killed people intentionally, but in basically self-defense. Mm-hmm. There was like a hot air balloon platform and there were like people rushing and she used the cut on them. And then she vomited. Right? Like, it's not something she was proud of and celebrating. She and wasn't smiling? She was not smiling. But it was something she did. Yes. In the show, it was very much not something she did. Can we talk about the murder weapon? Yes. 
I have a lot of feelings about the murder weapon. I was so disappointed with what happened. So essentially the, the big change is that instead of using the dagger with Mal's blood on it, which is how she manages to kill the Darkling in the book, she uses the magical sword that the crows had gone to get. And that sword is in fact finally successful at killing the Darkling. And it just felt kind of weird to me. The way a traditional plot would work is that, okay, everyone's putting their hopes, like all their eggs in one basket. You try the magical sword and it ends up not working and then it's disappointing. But then you just randomly pick up this sword or the dagger and you give it one last shot. And that actually was special enough to, to kill him. Like that feels more satisfying. That's more of a, a plot twist that has an up and down in it. And this was just so straightforward that I was just left kind of confused. And it's not like the dagger with Mal's blood on it wasn't right there. It was right there. They could have done it. I don't understand why not. I, you know, when I read the ending in the book, I was deeply confused as to how a knife killed the Darkling. And I wonder if it just would have been way too confusing to have any other blade kill the Darkling other than one that has been shown to kill literally everything it tries to kill. I mean, maybe. <laughs> but honestly, just as a reader of many fantasy books, I expected something more complicated. So I feel like a significant portion of the audience might have been primed for it. So it does make me wonder, though... Is that sword, the Shuhan Saint sword, Merzost or imbued with Merzost itself? Because I don't understand how else, like based on the universe rules we know from the books canon, it makes sense that it could kill him. Yeah, let's leave all the universe <laughs> rules we learn from book canon aside for the show here. Yeah, the sword became this like version of is there an object version of a Mary Sue? Like something that can't fail and has no flaws? It feels like an object that doesn't have any rules or constraints around it. It feels overpowered. Yes, it feels very overpowered. So I, I feel like the Darkling's death overall was not as good as it could have been. But here's one thing I did like about the Darkling's death. That he died? Is that a thing you like? <laughs> that he died. But I also really loved how at the funeral pyre, we saw a little bee buzzing about that Zoya brushes off of her sleeve. And mm -hmm. I just thought that was a really nice moment for book readers foreshadowing Elizabetha. A nice nod that they're probably going to do something similar to that plot in season three. Agreed. And that was the only nice moment of that scene, <laughs> in my opinion, which we can maybe get into later. Um, I don't think we finished talking about Alina and her changes yet. I think one of the biggest changes is about Alina and Merzost and how she uses it or the fact that she uses it at all. Yeah, what? So the way Alina uses Merzost is she kills Mal. But as we said, Mal was dying anyway. This definitely isn't her fault. She kills Mal. She goes to kill the Darkling. Nina's trying to bring Mal back to life. She goes over to Nina, who's like, oh, he's being really stubborn. He just needs a little oomph or whatever it says. She doesn't use the word oomph. And so Alina just kind of shakes him and then zaps him with Merzost. And then that brings Mal back to life. And that scene is creepy that where they're lying in the meadow and he gets like dragged, you know, suddenly off. 
I really didn't like it, actually. Just because it was a meadow scene or? (laughs) Not just because it was a meadow scene, but I think it also just felt like extremely uncomfortable. And I guess you're supposed to feel that way. So it definitely felt like a being yanked back unwillingly. I I think you guys are on the same page as me. There's so many things about it that don't make sense. Like, let me be clear. I don't mind the fact that Alina is using Merzost. I think that makes her more interesting as a character. It adds a little Mm -hmm. complexity because Alina does come off really kind of naive and lacking agency, as we we said this season. And I, I don't love that about her. It kind of made her more of a bland character. So to see her being tempted to use magic in a way she's not supposed to and actually doing it, I think that's a really interesting character development. However... What about this makes sense? She didn't learn to do any of this. I don't understand what she's doing. Like, it doesn't make any sense related to anything that we've learned. It doesn't make sense to me that, like, as a sun summoner, that is the type of Merzost she might be experimenting in. Like, I think if Nina was to use Merzost like a, a healer, that would make a lot more sense to me. But it felt like a random thing the writers wanted to do just to show that she used Merzos and it somehow saved Mal and then no dots were connected in between. It just happened. Nothing is explained. The idea that one could use Merzost to bring someone back from the dead who has recently died, if that is a thing that Grisha could do, every single Grisha would be doing this. This is how Merzost would be used. There are so many tragic situations you can think about where someone's loved one is dying in front of them and there's nothing they can do and you like cannot tell me that the vast majority of Grisha even if it is forbidden would not use Merzost in that think about the darkling our number one Merzost offender they bothered to write a whole (laughs) episode about how he lost his lover do you think he wouldn't use Merzost to bring her back if he could so the I don't It didn't bother me like it seems to have bothered you two. And I think it's specifically because we'd already been primed with the story of Morozova and the Swan Breaker being brought back to life with Merzost. But he did not bring his daughter back with ad hoc Merzost. This was his life's work, these three amplifiers that he had created. This was a huge piece of Merzost that he then took from its intended purpose and diverted to using to save his daughter. It was not an ad hoc thing. I also just, as we're talking, I feel like one thing is really being emphasized to me. Merzos is a concept. It's not like a well of magic that you draw upon. <laughs> like when you want to do bad things, Merzos is like, okay, you use magic in a way that's like improper or too much, or you're like, you're not respecting the rules of the universe somehow. It's not just something you suddenly want to like draw upon evil to do something powerful with. That it, that's. I always thought it was. So I'm like, I feel like I'm reading a different series than you two because I think the way they describe him pulling his like shadow soldiers out of himself as Nishavoya, it sounds like it's a well that's depleting him. And when Alina does it, after they tether, it feels like something that you are pulling from your own essence or life. And the way they characterize this in the show is by giving him like the black lung or whatever. But it feels like a source <laughs> of power that you can draw from. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I think the Darkling has learned to do something that's not right. 
But it's not like he's like, well, I'm going to flip the switch on my magic wand and now it's only doing Merzost magic. <laughs> like he's creating life in a way that he's not supposed to be doing. It, it stacks up with the rules in both show and book Merzost, which is rare. And it's respecting both of those in-universe rules. But here it just feels like Alina isn't trying to do something specific. She didn't work to like learn how to do something and then do it in the wrong way. She just wanted to do something and then it happened. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, that was definitely the strangest part to me. So speaking of Alina just wanting to do something and then it happened, the very, very end, you like that transition? <laughs> Love, hate. She does a dark cut. Yes. A dark cut. And then she gives the camera this look. <laughs> she definitely breaks the fourth wall in that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so what do we make of that? Again, this is another moment where it feels weird that we don't see her working her way up to this. She's not practicing doing a specific skill in the book. Bagra is really forcing her to learn how to do the cut and like forcing her to use it more and more and be comfortable with it. She's essentially training her. In the show, Bagra like apparently doesn't care that much about Alina learning how to do the cut, which is fine but then Alina just like whips it out like it's almost like some sort of instinctual reaction more than a skill which is not what I think of the cut as based on the books so I think the fact that it was the dark cut was the shocking part Mm -hmm. to me like why is it dark you know what exactly happened to explain that did it have to do with killing the darkling like I think that's where I was like, whoa. Also the fact that she was smiling, but let's talk about the fact that it seemed to be a dark cut, not her more standard light version of the cut. Does it mean she's evil now? She did Merzos, so now her soul and her cut are black. You know, I love an Alina corruption arc. If they were going to do an Alina corruption arc in season three, I'd be so here for it. But I don't think all of the pieces are there. I actually think they were trying to set up for that arc in this last episode of season two, but it felt so sudden. Alina's been this bubbly, like doesn't have to make any like real like hard decisions herself character for two seasons. And then you're suddenly making her into this like cold hearted, ruthless character all at once, like really felt off putting and not believable to me. Yeah. And I agree. There's, Nothing wrong in my mind with making them more complex, making them evil in, in air quotes. Yeah. But it's just the build up to get there. You feel shortchanged when it's a sudden character development out of nowhere. Yeah, because in this last episode, she's smiling while she kills the Darkling, which again, that is not at all true to what I understood from the books. And she says to him, your legacy is already written. There's no redemption. And... I was just like, this is cold, you know. He then tells her that without me, they will come for you. And she says, let them come. Again, this is not the Alina of the show that I've been acquainted with up until this point. And it also felt like they were really, like I said, setting up this arc of Alina's going to be taken down. But it felt so sudden to me in the show. They're trying to build up that clearly Alina is about to be you know, under siege from the people or other Grisha if they make a season three. Like Kaz even says something about this in this episode. And I was like, the Darkling has been around for centuries and it's only in like the last, let's say, year or so that he's been like considered a villain. 
by the people. So it felt like a, wow, they're really trying to immediately make Alina into a villain, and that did not at all happen to the Darkling. Yeah, well, you know, the Darkling, when he became basically a politician, he was pretty old. Yes. And he'd had a lot of experience. And now Alina in the show, she's certainly older than she is in the books, mid-20s-ish. And she is a terrible politician. Just like a truly terrible politician. I mean, she gets engaged to Nikolai and immediately like antagonizes his family, like deliberately. And like at the engagement party, I get her issues with them. But if she's trying to use the Lansov name as protection, she like maybe needs to be less of a jerk to them. We also see that with her punching Nikolai in the face, which I did not think made any sense in the show because he hadn't been complicit in the things he had been in the books. And so we have this ending where she's staying with Nikolai. She's on the stage for his coronation, right? She's going to have this big role. And I'm just like, girl, you are not ready. I haven't seen anything that makes me think that you'll be good at this. I think it's hilarious how often we evaluate characters' leadership skills in this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not something I normally would do while reading YA, but now it's like become a regular part of our various conversations. Totally. (laughs) I will add also, Alina is, in addition to not being very politic in her manner, she is incredibly naive politically. This is a big complaint about the books too, but she's all just like, well, tear down the fold and then it'll be fine. Mal says at one point, if we get rid of the fold, no one will hate Grisha anymore. Let's talk about Mal a little bit and the changes in his storyline. I'll start here since (laughs) I was such a Mal hater last episode and i want to say i re-watched the whole season and i think some of my criticisms of mal were not exactly fair (laughs) yeah both of your faces are so so shocked but basically in order to not turn mal into the douchebag that he is in Siege and Storm and a lot of Ruin and Rising. They made Mal just sort of perfect. Like, he handles everything super well. He doesn't really want to sacrifice himself, but he's, you know, happily on board that train. And what ends up happening is he is kind of so perfect there that then it makes Alina into the sort of whiny and upset one. Mm -hmm. And their dynamic is still bad because it's, I think, just a bad sort of relationship. Like, it was interesting to see it done in this new way, but ultimately they're just, like, massively codependent for not great reasons And I think that even trying to rewrite it, it didn't make them look good. It wasn't a relationship I found I could root for. And that was surprising to me on rewatching how much of like actually a lot of the whining Alina did, I like attributed to Mel when I guess it's just like their relationship (laughs) that I had more of the problem with. I was wondering why you hated Mel so much this season, but I also wonder that for the book. So I thought maybe it's just more of the same. I was missing something. (laughs) He didn't really have a character because if he had reacted to the things that were happening to him, he would have been a lot less likable. So basically, he didn't react. And 
I was not a huge fan. All right, so that's my, I was a little too harsh on Mal when I should have been harder on the relationship Mm. between them. What else about Mal? (laughs) So Mal is not living a quiet life tending an orphanage with Alina. Instead, he's the face of Stormhound now. That I actually thought was set up very nicely. The orphanage ending, I did not think was set up nicely in the original trilogy, but this, they talk a lot about wanting to explore the world, about wanting to see what was out there. On rewatch, I noticed Mal says something, and Nikolai even says, that's a very Sturmhund thing to say. I honestly think it was an extremely questionable decision to make him the new Sturmhund, because Sturmhund is like the negotiator, the one who's supposed to be extremely like quick on his feet and witty. And so I think Nikolai took a lot of pity on him, but the Sturmhund person is downhill from here. Yeah, Mal is like famously slow. Right. He's slow. He's honest. He's like, he's all the things you would not want to set up for this position. I would say he's he's gruff and slightly taciturn. Mm -hmm. All right. So what we did not talk about for Mal yet is his reaction to Alina bringing him back to life. So one thing that is notable here is that though Alina keeps her powers in the end, Mal does not. Yeah. Right. His tracking ability is gone. He loses his powers and is suddenly feeling lost because of it. Yeah. I think that explains a lot of his reaction to Alina. Like, I do wonder how it would have been different if she'd brought him back and he had still felt like himself. But basically, she brought him back and he felt different than he had. Like, she brought part of him back. And so I get that sort of reaction there, even if I don't think it was particularly interesting or satisfying to watch. I understood his confusion and a little bit of his hostility around it. Totally. I think whether or not he fully consciously realizes it, he's definitely blaming her for the loss of his powers. I think in the books, there's actually a great part where he and Alina discuss losing their powers and they're both missing it. And I think we don't get that nearly as much in the show. In the show, I think they make it more tied to his sense of self and identity. Like, why did I do all these things just because I was like fated to do this and created to be your tool? And I think that's an interesting question. And what I saw was him taking this out on Alina. And him saying, you know, I need to take a step back and figure out even who I am now before I can continue with this relationship. It made sense to me. I think it possibly also made sense to me because I think it's a retread of a storyline from a lot of medical dramas. Like, I'm fairly certain I've seen this exact plot in non-fantasy terms on Grey's Anatomy with Callie in Arizona. (laughs) And, you know, one of them makes the call to amputate the other one's leg because to save her and then the other one resents her forever. It didn't seem totally original, but I understood why it could be a deal breaker for their relationship. I think the imbalance in power between them was already something that was hard for Mal to deal with. Certainly show Mal dealt with it a lot better than book Mal, but then to not have anything to make you special and not have what you kind of felt your identity was anymore versus now this like super, super powered Alina, that's hard. And not to even have gotten a cool tattoo out of it, you know? (laughs) It does, again, it reminds me of the like show scene where he's like yanked away from lying on the meadow and how jarring it is. And I think that's supposed to represent somewhat of how it felt for him. 
to be pulled back Mm -hmm. to life, even though he doesn't actually talk about that aspect at all. I wish they had included something, possibly to explain the Alina using Merzo's aspect (laughs) selfishly. Mal would have been primed to describe what was so wrong about that moment and why what she did was not okay. And they didn't have any dialogue about that, which was confusing and I think a real missed opportunity. All right, we've been a little negative. So I just want to say one positive thing that I really enjoy about Alina's ending. (laughs) They set her up for going back to Shuhan and exploring her Shu heritage, which is something I would be really excited to see explored in season three. That is something that I'm actually excited for about this ending. Same. I think think that could be really awesome. So we covered a lot of the Darklings ending when we were talking about Alina because it's very intertwined with Alina since she is the one who ends him. But we also see the final scene with him lying on a pyre that they light. And I thought that scene was unexpected. In the book, Alina is seeing Ruby tailored to look like her burning alongside the Darkling and she's watching from a distance, right? She's hidden. And she kind of has all these feelings about it, all that conflict that book Alina had, the complicated relationship with the Darkling that show Alina does not. But in the pyre scene, the crows are there, like Nikolai's there. And then and then Alina tells Jenya and Zoya that they should light the pyre. She says to them, you both have every right to light him on fire, basically which I thought was so interesting because that is not my understanding of typically how lighting the pyre is treated. Totally. Like it's, you know, it's a lot more of a... Purification. I feel like in the show, it was treated more like burning a witch at the stake rather than the kind of (laughs) religious grieving significance that a funeral pyre normally has. Yeah, and that, that felt so out of place to me. The note it struck was very strange for me. And then Nikolai makes a speech. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, why Why are you here talking? And, you know, I think Alina on her own lighting the pyre, like doing this as like a private thing, I think could have had a lot more resonance. I don't know. The characters could have used that as a moment of like complicated reflection as to their relationship with him. And instead, they just kind of treated it almost as like a revenge victory lap yeah but then we get the b so that was pretty cool so speaking of deaths the last shadow and bone trilogy character that i'll mention is david is gone supposedly quote unquote gone at the end of season two versus in book world this doesn't happen until the second duology so this is you know potentially setting jenya off on a different path yeah it's a weird way to resolve David because he's essentially not resolved at all. He's not dead. He's not alive. He could be dead forever. He could also just be missing and pop up in season three, which I fervently hope he does because I really enjoy David as a character. It's a strange point to to leave him at, I think. And, you know, they now have the triumvirate being Jenya, Alina, and Zoya. Girl power. Alina, because she still has her girl power. We can't girl boss gaslight gatekeep our way out of this one, boys. I think the best part about that phrase here is that each of these three of the triumvirate like embodies one of these so well. Like Jenya is such like a gaslighter in the first trilogy. 
Alina is clearly our girl boss, and Zoya is a gatekeeper. Truly, we have the meme on lock here. So we have this triumvirate of Genya, Alina, Zoya, and we kind of talked about in the last episode, Zoya is mostly absent. We don't really see these relationships evolving, so it's a little bit surprising to kind of see that triumvirate at the end. But I sort of am holding out hope that David will come back and then Alina either loses her powers or something else tragic happens and he jumps into the triumvirate and Alina, I don't know, is becomes Sturmhund herself, maybe? I don't know. Can we talk about our crows? Let's start with Nina, just because I think... We love her. A, I love her. My waffle queen. But I would say as a whole, we've been, you know, kind of down on some of the changes at the ending. And I just think it's logistically like the writers paid a lot more attention to the crow's plot and they really crammed in too much stuff, cut out too much stuff with our original Shadow and Bone characters. So their endings feel less good. The crow's endings on a whole are more successful. But I will start with Nina because I'm slightly disappointed in Nina's ending. Nina is very smart. She's awesome. What on earth did she do like trying to free Matthias? She goes there at like fight time holding the paper pardon in her hand, like drops it and lets it get trampled. That's not the Nina I know. She would have never thought that was going to be successful. Book Nina would never. Even previous show Nina would never. (laughs) That scene made me so angry. Just like every part of it. I don't know what her plan was exactly there. I don't know why she was trying to get Pekka Rollins' attention so desperately. But I did think part of her ending that was really interesting was her reaction to Alina resuscitating Mal. The expression on her face when, you know, Mal comes back to life and when she's describing it to Kaz, it clearly looks like she knows something is not right. Yep. Like I said before, we don't actually get a lot of discussion of what Alina did and how it was Merzos other than Nina's reaction to it because she's so shaken and like a little bit uncertain, which is not a very Nina thing to be. Yeah, I thought that was really well done, but I'm really curious if we'll get Nina describing what happened there because Nina knew the limits of her power there. And if she doesn't know exactly, she knows the range of things that could have happened. I thought it was interesting that she said Alina was the real deal as a saint. Like what exactly was going through her mind as she said that specifically? There was just something so dark about it, like the expression and the way yeah. she said it that I was like, ooh, a little bit of chills. So we alluded to this, Matthias. Matthias ends season two opting into Pekka Rollins' new like fight club to feel something different and gets backstabbed somewhat by Pekka Rollins in terms of having to fight wolves. Who would have thought? Yeah, I don't love the storyline for Matthias. It doesn't feel good. And I can't tell if that's because it isn't good or because it just truly pains me to have things that are setting Nina and Matthias even further apart. I don't know. I mean, Either way, it sets the stage for Nina and Matthias to be at a similar place relationship-wise that they were at the start of Six of Crows. But I think he already kind of hated her, so is it entirely necessary? I think I specifically disliked it because it felt so untrue to book Matthias. 
he and Inej are our characters that care so much about their religion and relationship to their god or gods that it felt very unexpected and random like they were just trying to do something set him up to get shirtless again I guess (laughs) (laughs) I was upset by it I think you're right Matthias is a character that he feels a lot of things and he's angry but he's usually angry at himself in the books he doesn't take his anger out on others so to see him except Nina yes except Nina of course but to see him like venting his anger through like violent fighting feels it feels wrong all right let's talk about probably the number one ship of the show Inej and Kaz what did you think of each of their endings of season two I thought Inej was beautifully done I think we talked a little bit in the last episode about that scene with Kaz the how will you have me scene which I just thought it was gutting to watch but I'm like there yes like this is the conversation that you need to be having and this is the thing she needs to do for herself and I thought getting to actually see her on a ship in action was so great I loved that that was something I'd hoped for a little bit in the King of Scars duology just like getting a glimpse of her actively doing a thing and just getting to see that here was so thrilling. Yeah, I thought Inej was a great character all season. She had a great ending. It was so lovely to see her at the prow of that ship and really getting to do something active and that she was really passionate about. felt lovely. I love that you two are so positive about Inej's final scenes of season two. For me, I was definitely rolling my eyes during the fight with the Nichevoya where she had the magic sword, and I was like, this is just an edge fan service at this point. <laughs> I um, mean, okay, sure. Yeah, that whole sword thing. I mean, I dislike anything to do with the sword, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy for her and her taking off on the ship, like both of you said. Super intrigued by the love triangle hinted with Tolia the entire episode. I don't feel like his chances are good. But, you know, who can say? Alina still has her powers. Anything can happen. I loved when Tolia held out his hand at the end to help her on the ship, and she took it. And to me, that felt like like a choice that she was making because it was a thing she wanted to do. Just getting to see her make that choice for herself felt so good. I think specifically because it, her last scene before that was with the How Will You Have Me one with Kaz in the chapel when she's like tenderly holding his hand through the glove and says, you know, like with gloves on. So to see her like, you know, barehanded so consciously decide to take Tolia's bare hand, I think is supposed to be significant. And it felt like that. I think Tolia is a great foil for Kaz. He is someone that's very comfortable with himself and very straightforward. Obviously, he has no issues with with touch, but I just think his whole personality is a direct contrast to Kaz. And I think, honestly, it would only be a good thing for Kaz and Inej's relationship, because I think that Tolia could be something that spurs Kaz out of his sort of like emotional morass, which otherwise I could see him like happily wallowing in for the rest of his life. So what about Kaz? I don't even know this, Kaz. I'm just going to start with that. The beginning of this 
finale episode, he gives Nikolai his cane to use. And then towards the end, he tells Inej that he wants to help Nina find her happily ever after. I don't know. Who is this? And then he's just hiring girls out of sexual slavery. It just feels like a much softer Kaz. And I know we've talked about this before, that show Kaz has definitely been like humanized and softened. But this final, like the final episode of season two really made that clear to me. Even if he ended things still ambiguously with Inej, that this is not the bastard of the barrel that I knew from the books. Yeah. And I think we're seeing at the end, I think we're seeing him, you know, try to be better. I actually kind of love and I think it makes me understand why Inej feels a compulsion towards him much more than I could from Book Kaz, who's just like, whoa. On a happier note, how about Wesper? Wesper! Yeah, our remaining characters here. It's interesting because whatever is next, they'll start it together. Right? I do like the joke that they make about not having put a label on it, where Jesper's like, that's my man, is it? Like, yeah. we haven't, you know, had that discussion. But, you know, there's that deleted scene of Jesper asking Wyland to move in with him. It's pretty serious. But it's interesting where they each kind of know these secrets about each other, but what Jesper knows about Wyland is so different from what he starts off knowing about Wyland in Six of Crows that, like, I'm really curious how that will go. I did think they were the cutest ship here. They certainly won that place in my heart. I think they ended their relationship at, like, at a point that felt really natural. I'm, like, almost glad we didn't have that deleted scene of Jesper asking Wyland to move in with him just because I almost felt like their book relationship was like very sudden and didn't have the like right timing or build up. And in the show, it just it feels natural. It feels like more right. I like this tentative relationship and like them feeling each other out and finding their way together. It feels really sweet and nice. I think they're the only characters in the entire season who end on somewhat of a happy note. Pretty much. All right, let's do a lightning round. We've talked about all of these different endings. So what endings do we like more? And what does it mean that we like it more? I actually think I like Alina ending with her powers. I feel both trepidation and a little bit of like fear of change from the books and how the story went there. I think I'm most afraid of what will happen to Zoya and her storyline. But overall, I'm pretty excited. For the crows, I am so curious about how they're going to work the ice heist in when they've already taken so many major plot points and twists and used them this season and last. Honestly, I think I mostly feel excited, even though I highlighted a lot of the things that concerned me or I didn't like about the finale. Yeah, I think I've alluded to this before. I feel like my feelings on the ending for a lot of the Shadow and Bone characters are negative because I feel like it didn't live up to its narrative potential. The characters feel less complex and interesting in some ways. However, I think the potential for next season for all of the Shadow and Bone characters is very interesting and I am very excited for that. It almost felt like the writers needed to like get through some plot points that were already written for them. And now there's this blank slate that could be really dynamic for Alina and Mal and these other characters. I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. Anjali, I basically agree with that. Before even season one came out, Lee Bardugo told us to think about the show a little bit as fanfic. And if we take this ending as fanfic, 
I like the points of the ending for the most part. I'm not sold on a lot of the execution, but season three is a whole new thing to execute on. And I definitely think that there are interesting places they could go with Alina still having her powers, with a slightly modified Crows, and Crows whose backstories we already know, and maybe Mal joins the Crows. And, <laughs> you know, like there, there are all of these possibilities. Episode eight felt very chaotic to me because it felt like it was just queuing up all these potential things for a season three or a spinoff. But I am really curious to see what those things are and how they blossom. And you asked, what does it mean that we like this more? Honestly, I think it's pretty simple. I think it means that we like new content to be surprised and kept on our toes. The fact that it diverges so much from the books just means like net new content and expanding our experience with this universe. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because after reading the original trilogy, I was so frustrated with the treatment at the end of the relationship between the Darkling and Alina that I wrote, you know, a gazillion words of <laughs> Darklina fanfic. And I'm not writing it for the show. It's interesting kind of the ways we engage. I'm clearly engaging a lot more on the podcast with the show, but I'm not inspired enough to go redo some of these trickier parts of it. So Anjali, it's cake time, which is my favorite time. I hope you feel ridiculous reading this prompt. The new triumvirate are hosting a party for the Grisha to make them feel better about having been persecuted. <laughs> What cake do they serve to make the Grisha feel better? You did give me this prompt like two months ago, and I can't say I made a lot of headway on it because the premise is somewhat ridiculous. I'll run with it. So I would make, I think what they're kind of commonly called are pinata cakes. So a cake where when you dig into it with a fork, a lot of fun candy spills out. So I would make a cake with very dark black cocoa chocolate frosting and the inside of the cake has candy like m&m say in red and green and blue and yellow and i think that symbolizes i don't know if this is going to make them feel better about persecution but it represents you know the end of the fold and the emergence of life again and also the sun and light and so it's a new chapter and future for all of the orders. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for indulging me on this absurd cake. You're fun. very welcome. All right, book recommendations. Okay, so I have a kind of different one than normal. Today, I want to talk about Salt to the Sea. It's based on a real life sinking of a ship during World War II. And it's told from four different perspectives. I think if you like the Nina Matthias romance specifically, you might enjoy this book. Sounds great. I love the Nina Matthias romance. What do you two have? My recommendation, I'm not sure if either of you have read it, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zemin. Oh, yeah. I read it last month and I just loved it. I I think it reminds me a little bit of Ready Player One, but if Ready Player One was well-written literary fiction, it just, it's so beautifully written. It was so, just so pleasing, you know, and it reminded me a lot of Donna Tartt in her sort of manner of writing. But I feel like whenever I read Donna Tartt books like The Secret History and The Goldfinch, there's this sense of doom and dread that makes me too anxious to actually enjoy what I'm reading. But this was, it was really fun and it was really touching and it was great. I liked it a lot. 
The book I'll recommend is Note of the Ninth, which I had talked about this series. It's the Lock Tomb series. I talked about it in a previous episode. I was excited for the book Note of the Ninth to come out. I just finished a reread of it. And wow is basically all I can say. Each of these books is better on reread. I've read each of the books in the series twice. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com.